Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. We are going to have a special kind of Coach's Corner panel tonight, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by this evening's special guest, Dave Bisbee. He is the general manager and director of golf for Seven Canyons Golf Club out in Sedona, Arizona. He'll be joining me on the second half of the show, so excited to have him back. He hasn't been uh, on the show for a few years now, but uh, he's raring to go. I just uh, messaged him a few minutes ago, and he's going to be calling in in just, uh, just about an hour's time, and we're going to have a great discussion talking about some of the uh, upgrades to, to the uh, Seven Canyons uh, Resort uh, that have been going on over the last uh, year or so and a little bit about uh, the late Tom Weiskopf, who, of course, was uh, uh, instrumental in carving out uh, a great 18 holes there at Seven Canyon. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, and about Tom Weiskopf as well uh, when Dave joins me on the second half. But again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And for some reason, if you're uh, going to be tuning in a little bit later, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and you can just scroll down to the on-demand section uh, and you can listen to the show in its entirety through the recorded version which will be a little bit later on the show so for some reason if you catch us midstream as it were uh, you can always go back and catch the whole broadcast uh, a little bit later on or any of the other previously aired shows as well all right as i mentioned i got a special coaches corner uh, panel tonight uh, just one panelist uh, she's been on the show a number of times over the years and uh, was actually on a little bit earlier this season as well. And of course, I'm talking about Dr. Allison Kurt, and she's uh, both a PGA and an LPGA Master Professional, as well as a Doctor of Psychology, making her America's only female PGA Master Professional trained in clinical psychology. Uh, she's also received numerous professional honors. Uh, some include the 2015 LPGA National Teacher of the Year, and multiple years, she was the LPGA Western Section Teacher of the Year. Currently, she teaches at the Wood Ranch Golf Club in Los Angeles area, and she's a contributing editor and a top 25 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. So please welcome my very special guest, Dr. Allison Kurtz. Welcome, Allison. Good evening, Ted. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be on the show again. I'm always happy to have you come on. I wish you, I wish you could come on more, but you're so darn busy. and It's uh, hard to get you to, to commit to more, more than a few times a year, but I'll take whatever I can get. And uh, I had to edit your... Uh, I had to edit your... Uh, your bio down, you've got so many accolades there, we'd be going through half the show uh, just reading them all out. So I just, I just hit a few highlights, but uh, if you go to uh, allisonkurtgolf.com uh, a little bit later on the show, you can see all of the uh, great information there that she has to offer, and we'll talk about some of that here tonight as well. Um, but Allison, I, I thought what we would do tonight, uh, again, because 
you know, in addition to being a great golf instructor, uh, as I mentioned in the opening, you, you've obviously studied and trained in clinical psychology. So uh, you're also a great advocate of working on the mental side of the game and, uh, and do some very effective mind coaching. So we're going to talk about a couple of things, Matt. We're going to talk about the physical parts of the game, and then we're going to talk about how, from the mind aspect, how we can become uh, a better golfer all the way around using the old brain box, if you will. So we'll talk about a few of those things, if that's okay. Let's do it. I'm excited. Okay, so let's start with some of the, the strategies or tips, if you will, just to help some of our, our high handicap golfers out there that are struggling. And I think the first one we're going to hit is everybody has to hit it off the tee. And there's a lot of factors that we have to consider when and where we want to position our tee shot. So I know we don't have the uh, uh, visual component here, but just give us an idea. So when we're getting out on, the, on that first tee and we're looking at the hole, and you can just use an example if you want just to, as a guide, but what, do we need, what are some of the factors that many of our, our golfers that, we're, that are listening to the show need to consider when they're teeing up? Definitely becoming the expert of your own game and knowing your shot pattern and your dispersion when you're under pressure and also when you're calm. So typically the first tee is going to bring some element of anxiety, of nervousness. You may not have warmed up yet. You want to know typically how you hit those shots. Are you a fader of the golf ball, a slicer of the golf ball? Is your propensity to hit it thin or to hook it? When you know what your shot shape tends to look like under pressure, then you can start selecting targets that complement that shape. So if it's a dogleg right of a starting hole, you can aim down the left side of the fairway if you're a fader or a slicer, let that ball naturally curve, and now you're back in, in a great starting position for the first hole. If you're a player that hooks a golf ball and we have a dogleg right to left, well, potentially we aim down more of the right side of the fairway and we let that natural hook come into play so it can position you in the, first, uh, in the middle of the fairway. So basically what I'm encouraging players to do is, is know yourself so well, know what your pattern is, so that you can pick a start line that complements what your pattern is rather than trying to fight it. Be yourself. Be authentic. Pick a good start line that matches your shape. As you start to move throughout the the holes and you become way more comfortable and settled down, your target lines may differ a little bit. Your shots may start to straighten out. You may become more warmed up or more in control of how your body is moving. So you'd want to start picking targets that allow you to have an errant shot and still be safe. Pick a target to the fat part of the fairway. Pick a target that if you miss it left or right, you're still into a good, you're still left into a good place. Uh, if you're on a par three, don't go for pins that are on left sides or right sides. Go for the middle of the green and just hit the green. And that would be a really great starting place to look at um, getting yourself in a positive place to begin your round and, and picking smart targets. So really what, what you're saying then is, is really to use the whole shape in, in a lot of cases to your advantage. So if you're, as you said, a fader or even a slicer of the ball or you hook or, or even draw the ball, um, then you want to use the shape of that hole to your advantage and aiming in such a way that you're going to maximize uh, the fairway's position and where you can place it um, so that if you do hit it a little, miss hit it or, or hit it off, off uh, um, center or what have you, um, you still got some fairway to work with. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Exactly. You can't change the shape of the hole. We can only work with it. We can uh, not necessarily change the shape of our ball flight while we're in performance mode. Maybe we can on the range, but can't on the golf course. So we're going to use what we have to the best of our abilities. Yeah, well said. And, and what about on the actual tee box? Is it sometimes a good idea? What is your thought on this? So let's just take, we'll use one example. So let's take that, that uh, left to right dog leg, if you will. Um, should we be teeing up on one side? Now, you, you mentioned about aiming um, a little bit more down the left side so that fade works back or even that slice works back. But should we be uh, teeing up on one side or the other uh, of the tee box or does that make a difference? It does. And, and my perspective is a little different than the norm on this particular point is I will have a player stand on each side of the tee box and then visually announce what gives them the most sight line towards grass towards safe grass. So some players may say, or some coaches may say, well, if you're a slicer, tee up on the right side of the tee box no matter what, aim on the left side and let it curve. Well, in some cases, based on where the tee box, uh, tee markers are set up, that may look so disorganized to a particular player. And so I encourage them, stand in the middle and see what it looks like, stand to the right, see what the fairway looks like, then stand to the left, and then see what gives you the best sight line towards the fattest part of the fairway or the part of the fairway that you're trying to aim towards that will allow your natural shape to occur. So rather than making it a hard and fast rule, you'll know as you step up to the tee box, wow, going over to the right, all I see is green grass. Going over to the left side of the box, all I see is bunker and out of bounds okay, let's put yourself and tee yourself in the position where you visually see the safest landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it can change. You're right. I mean, the way a lot of golf courses set up their tee boxes, um, one for what might be for one person might look slightly different for another. So you really have to sort of assess the situation. And this goes to the next question as well, that a lot of people I've heard them say, you know, kind of work your way back from the hole. So, uh, as an example, if I'm on a, a par four and let's say it's 400, we'll just take a simple number, 400 yards even, um, is it to my advantage to not just think about hitting it off the tee um, and letting it sort of go wherever, um, but maybe sort of um, splicing up that hole, so working from the green back? Where do I want to put myself, not just in the fairway, but how far do I want to try to place it down there to a, a position to set me up for my next shot? So is it a good idea sometimes to work – from the green back? Yes, certainly. I think looking once you get to the green and also looking back if you're playing a practice round or getting familiar with your home course is really helpful too because it will give you a nice picture that maybe your landing spot you're picking happens to be the most narrow part of the fairway or the hardest part of the fairway to access. So I think the perspective from the green is helpful when you look that way. But specifically to your question, when you think about setting up your shot for your approach, it is very helpful. I, I really get um, pulled between two theories here, and I haven't settled on one or the other, Ted, to be honest with you. So I kind of give all the information, and then I let the student pick what's best for them. So I'll do that here tonight. I'm really pulled to the stats perspective that says the closer you get to the green, the better off you are. So distance rules proximity rules, even if you're a little messy right or left, 
try to get as close to the green as possible because statistics will say if you're 30 yards from the green versus 100 yards from the green, 30 yards you have a better chance to get on than you do at 100 yards. So I like that theory a lot where if you're on a par four at 400 yards, you're hitting driver no matter what, provided that there's no creeks or really crazy things on the fairway. However, if I have a player that continually tells me I'm awful from 30 yards, but I'm really good from 80, that confidence factor means a lot. And I want to put the player in the position that they feel the best and the most comfortable in. That doesn't mean I'm not going to give them a lesson from 30 yards so that they can hopefully build that skill. But if a player works themselves backwards and say, you know what, from a 400-yard par four, I really like 150. That feels great to me. Okay, well, let's shoot for that number because that confidence piece has a really high quality to it rather than just going for proximity. So I like to try to balance that perspective. Think backwards, particularly on par fives. I think that's way more important than par fours because we want to set ourselves up for a successful third shot into that par five with a wedge. And that's where you might be doing a little bit more math with your layup than on a par five. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And, and I think it, it it boils down to playing to your strengths. If, like you, As you said, if, if 150 or 80, whatever the case is, is a, a good number for you and you have a lot of confidence, you certainly want to play with those strengths. But it's also good to learn uh, sometimes stepping out of the box and learning some other uh, areas as well that maybe you're not right, comfortable with right now but can be because you always want to have options. You don't want to be just like, well, it's not 150 yards, so what do I do now? You never want to be in a position where you don't have uh, other options if your, your go-to shot, let's say, is not available at that particular time. And I think that's uh, something to shoot for as well is to try and um, increase your, your repertoire, if you will, of, of uh, shots in the bag. Um, but some great points that you raise. And, again, I think it's important that people understand that, you know, even though there are a lot of similarities to from instructor to instructor um, in, in uh, you know, analyzing some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, I think there's always room uh, for looking at other options and other perspectives because what work, works for one uh, golfer may not necessarily work for somebody else. So, it's always good to get some different perspectives. So some great points that you, you bring up there, Allison. Um, an, another area, too, is, is I think you mentioned the greens. Um, how can we use the greens to our advantage? I mean, especially in today's game where a lot of greens are not like they were, you know, 30, 40 years ago where every green was sort of flat. Now we've got some undulations and things like that. Can we use those to our advantage? And if so, how? Most certainly, and this is an area I find very underobserved by the amateur golfer, is to take the topography of the green in mind and to look at it um, advantageously. And I was just playing a practice round today at Sherwood Country Club, and they redid their greens out here in, in Southern California, and there's a lot more undulation to them. And there were some, some parts of the greens that almost like a basketball um, backboard in a way. And I could imagine like a pin tucked back there and how might I use that backboard to stop a shot or throw a pitch shot into the corner of the hill and then use it to roll back down to the hole. So when you take in all the the, uh, different mounds and undulations into a green, look at where you could throw a ball and have it safely either slow down or use slopes to your advantage 
to help access the pin. It may not be a straight shot to the pin that gives you the best chance to get close to the hole. It may actually be hitting it left into a side bank and letting that ball spin down and roll to the cup. So you can oftentimes look at some of those mounds to bank the ball off of. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that concept, hitting it into a hillside to slow the ball down because you can't access the hole any other way. Sometimes a player looks at a shot and they're like, oh, I have to hit a high lofted flop shot. Well, that's a very high risk shot that you have to have incredible talent to pull off with a lot of, with a lot of spin and accuracy. But hitting something lower and hitting it into a hill on purpose so that the ball ricochets off of the hill, bounces up, and then slows down could be a really viable play. So green books and utilizing green books are very helpful because from 150 yards away, you can tell where those slopes are based on the green book and the yardage book. And you may mm -hmm. choose to aim away from the pin to help uh, slow your golf ball down or keep your golf ball on the green rather than just always attacking the hole. Yeah, and that's, a, again, some great advice for our amateur golfers out there. Everybody thinks and it gets in this mindset. They see the pin and just naturally they're drawn to it and they say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this and not really assessing all of some of the trouble that could be around it or going for that pin may not necessarily be good because if the ball hits um, and they're not really proficient with their wedges, it could skip over the green and who knows what trouble could be behind the green or puts them in a worse position where now they've got water in front of the green, they've overshot the hole, now they've got to come back and go towards water, which adds to the anxiety, and, and we'll talk about some of that a little bit later. But um, So it can create a whole little, um, uh, you know, some options that uh, can put them in worse situation um, than what some of the things that you just mentioned. So, um, again, great point. And I want to stick for a second just uh, learning to work around the greens because this is something, you know, we see a lot of our amateur golfers that don't always uh, get the green in regulation. They may be you know, get on one side or the other or back or front. Um, so how can they really hone in and work on some of those little shots around the green? What's some good uh, tips, if you will, or drills maybe that you could suggest uh, to help them be really proficient so when they're not hitting uh, every green in regulation, how can they recover? I think having a good plan in place with club shot selection first, club selection next, execution of the skill third. So that's a really good system that players can implement to hone in on their short game. So I'll go through those steps. First is identifying the shot selection. Does the ball need to go high? Does the ball need to go low? Once you determine what it needs to do, so if there's a lot of green in front of you, it's going to be a low shot. If there's no green in front of you and the pin's really close, it's got to be a high shot. That then leads you into part two, picking the right golf club. Do we need a lob wedge because it's a high shot? Do we need a gap wedge because it's a low shot? Once you have the right tool in hand and that's a good matchup for the skill that you're going to be using, now it's time to apply the skill. Is that a chipping motion, a flop motion, or a pitch motion? Once that is done, now it's time to actually execute. So what I like to have players do is, is put random balls around their practice putting green, all sorts of different lies, close pins, middle pins, far pins. Bring all your wedges with you and pick some really hard chips and pitches 
put the golf ball down and go through those three steps. What's the shot ask me to do, high versus low? What's the right club for it? And then what's the right skill for it, chipping skill, pitching skill, flop skill? And so I find that when players are more honed in on picking the right club and matching it with the right shot, they end up hitting it a lot closer. It's like they already have the skill in there, but most of the mishaps end up being when it's the wrong club, the wrong shot type set for the distance that you're looking at. In terms of drills, I think that the hands are extremely important in chipping, and we want to train each hand to be skillful and strong. So I, for a drill, I would have players chip to, let's say, 15 feet, five balls with right hand only on the club, and then five mm -hmm. balls with left hand only on the club so that they can independently build the muscles and the skill set of solid contact with each and every hand and then finish up with five balls, both hands on the club. You'll find that if you can hit a one-handed shot pretty close to the hole, then it should be a lot easier if you've got both hands in play. So it can also be a confidence booster. Yeah, and I think it's, it's good to understand what role each hand plays too because I think sometimes – uh, again, if somebody's right-hand dominant, they tend to get the right hand, and you know, even for right-handed golfers, uh, tend to get it a little bit too overactive and end up hitting, you know, uh, the ground in behind uh, or thinning it or what have you. So I think it's good to really get a good feel um, doing those one-handed drills, both your lead hand and your backhand, and vice versa, of course, if you're a left-handed golfer, uh, the, your right hand would be would be your lead hand and your left hand would be your trailing hand. So I think that's a great idea. And I think the more you practice these things and do the different steps that you're talking about, again, builds up confidence. And this helps to avoid when you get in a situation like that, then you can sort of dial in that mental Rolodex, if you will, and say, hey, here's the situation. I know what to do. I know what club I need to select. And then you can just sort of set up and, and, get, uh, and go through the process a little bit easier. And I think it also, when mm -hmm. you agree, too, is you have to look at the percentage of um, success. So you need to break it down in such a way, and I'll give you an example, and then maybe you can, you can touch on this as well. Whatever shot you're faced with, whether it's around the green like we're talking about, or even if it's a longer shot, if the likelihood of you successfully pulling that shot off is, you know, 70, 80 percent or above, then I think it's okay to go for it. If you're around 50 percent or lower, 50%, um, okay, again, depending if there's not a lot of trouble around, you may that risk. But if you have a 30%, let's say, or even a third of success of any given shot, then that's a very high-risk shot to take. And I think you need to really reassess and come up with another plan. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you focus on that area as well as, as have people sort of look at a percentage? You may call it something different. You may approach it slightly different. But essentially, the... Um, points of what I'm making about uh, sort of the high risk, low risk percentage. Is that something that you think about and try to encourage your students to, to factor in when they're making a decision? You know, that's really interesting. I've never broadcast it in that manner, but it, now that you have verbalized it, it, it is kind of interesting what your success rate would be. I approach it a little bit different, and I say that anytime the ball is in the air, there's more chance for error. So we want to go with always defaulting to keeping the ball low to the ground in all cases possible until you can't any longer. So like you might have heard the saying, you know, putt when you can, chip when you can't putt, mm -hmm. pitch when you can't chip. 
and flop when you can't pitch. So you work your way backwards to if you can putt it, do it. If you can't, you've got to start with a chip. Chips tend to be low and more running base. Those are your, your mm-hmm. best percentage for accessing the hole. If you can't chip anymore because of the conditions and what's being asked of you, you have to go into a pitch. That's a little, little bit more air time, a little bit higher, and a little bit more roll. If you can't pitch anymore because the conditions don't support that, you've got to flop it, and that's when it's staying in the air a whole bunch and hardly rolling out. So progressively getting into the more challenging and the more difficult and the higher risk shot as the last resort. So I look at maybe what you're talking about from the percentage more from a shot selection than Mm -hmm. necessarily what they feel good at. Because I'll tell you, Ted, when I go through a lesson, and maybe you've experienced this as well, um, I always ask them, like, what's your favorite club to chip with? And there's always one. Oh, I do everything with a lob wedge. Or I do everything with my sand wedge. So it's like I know you do everything with it, but try to build a house with just a hammer because you like the hammer. It gets awfully Mm -hmm. hard when you try to saw a piece of wood and all you like is the hammer. So when they start to see that there's more options and they're kind of married to a club and they're creating shots with a club that are actually high risk, then they start to see how much easier life can be by selecting different clubs and using different skills like just a basic chip or a basic bump and run then it starts to really prove the point, okay, I'm actually putting myself at high risk now. Let's go with my most low-risk shots, which are low-running shots, and then work myself back from there. And, you know, that that's such a great, um, again, a great point to bring up because, you know, you're allowed 14 clubs in the bag, and it's amazing how many people will settle on three or four of their favorite clubs. So maybe, the, like you said, it might be the lob wedge is their favorite to, uh, you know, to chip with or, or what have you. Uh, and maybe their seven iron might be, you know, another club that they use. And of course, their their driver or three wood, and they don't use the rest. But that you have to always look at other options. There's always other options available. And I think the more, you know, you're able to utilize the clubs in the bag for various different scenarios, then that gives you not just 14 clubs, but multiple scenarios and options to consider. Um, whatever that case may be, and obviously the level of, of severity. So you're right. I think if, it's great to have a favorite club, uh, especially for the short game like that. But I think sometimes a lot of, uh, of our amateur golfers get into the sort of pigeonholed into the position where I'm just going to stick with this club because it feels good, and uh, I'm going to go from there. So I think they have to you know, be willing to experiment, and that's the best thing they can do when they're on the practice tee is to get out there and experiment with the other clubs in the bag and other shots um, to help build some confidence so that when they don't have that perfect shot that they typically uh, look for, they're going to have some other options in the bag. So I think that's a great point that you raised. Um, what do you think of this concept? I've heard people talk about, I've heard instructors talk about, is sort of thinking about earlier, working your way back from the green. But is that necessarily a good um, idea for, especially a 25-plus handicapped person, to be thinking a couple of shots ahead, or should they just be focusing on the shot at hand? What are your thoughts? That's a really good question when you threw in the criteria of 25-plus handicap. Um, You know, part of it, I believe, really depends on what kind of ball striker they are. If there's someone that is a 25 handicap but hit it really far, or if they're a 25 handicap and maybe max out between 100 and 150 yards, the shorter the hitter, I think the more present and single-shot focused you want to be. 
because if you're only working in 150 yard increments, you can pretty much maneuver around the golf course. If you're a player right. that's a 25 handicap and your drive is well over 200 and you've got some 180s in there, you've got some longer shots, you may want to think ahead a little bit, but you may not have to think three shots ahead because by then I hope you're on the putting green. I would say that most everyone needs to focus on the shot in front of them, and this ties in a little bit of our mental game too, is to not get caught up in the past and not get too ahead in the future. Just see what the shot is asking you to do in this given moment. And if you know that your max is 150 yards, what's between you and 150 yards, take care of that business first. Then once you get to the next shot, let's say your max off of the fairway is only 100 yards or 120 yards. Okay, what's between you and 120 yards? Focus on that. Take care of business. For the player who hits it much farther, maybe their drive is between 200 and 230. See what's in between you and that distance. Take care of business. And see if it sets you up for success in your realm of confidence for the next shot. And if it doesn't, Maybe you don't want to hit it that far. Maybe you actually want to hit it shorter to put you into your most comfortable club, particularly for a 25 handicap. Yeah, and, and again, you obviously have to look at the individual's abilities. Because, again, you can take, just as you exampled here, two 25-plus handicap uh, players, but maybe one has um, greater ball-striking abilities, able to hit it further and more consistently than the other one. So, again, there are going to be two approaches to the game. So I think that's a great, again, a great point that you bring up. Um, so very interesting, some, uh, some uh, interesting strategy tips, if you will, that you've given uh, golfers to think about. And uh, I know there's many, many more areas that we could cover, but I just wanted to kind of give the, the folks a little bit of taste because, again, even though I know that uh, you've been specializing a little bit in uh, clinical psychology and really getting into the mental side of the game here in the last several years, um, obviously, you're, you're a, a top-notch uh, instructor as well, working on other parts of the game. So I wanted to give them just a little taste of how you approach things um, in, in your le- on your lesson tee, if you will. So let's flip the switch a little bit, and let's now get into you know to the mind game a little bit. And the first thing I want to talk about is to give you an opportunity to express really what we're talking about here. And I don't want to get into some of the specific issues that people might be faced with, but as an example, um, you know, in addition to sort of our regular golfers that you uh, work with. I know you've worked with some athletes uh, in other areas and, and uh, obviously a higher caliber golfer. So they have to work on, obviously, their uh, mental performance as well. Why is that important? What, you know, are, are we not just sort of stepping up to the tee or stepping up the ball and let's, let's just get that darn thing down the fairway? Why is it important to have a, a good sort of mindset, if you will, in playing this game? I believe the mind is the engine of the golf swing. So it is, and it is, it's running the motor patterns. It's running the templates for the physical golf swing. And there's so much that can juggle up the system through emotion, perception, belief, conscious ability. If those components are disorganized, not clear, unfocused, no matter how good your physical sense is, the program isn't going to operate efficiently. And when I look at it from a neuroscience level, I mean, there's not much debate there. We've got motor patterns that are stored in our brain. We're trying to retrieve them and run them. Pretty simple. 
when we start tying in emotion or additional thoughts or criticism, we're now adding in extra challenges for that motor pattern program to be run. So if someone has a horrible mental game, they're very critical of themselves, they don't know how to image and visualize, they're horrible with their self-statements, they don't know how to control their breath and their physiology and their heartbeat, how do you expect to hit a great drive? Those are the, the hub and the most important ingredients to human beings be able to, being able to operate those motor programs. So it's really interesting to me working with a player who's like, you know, my, my mental game's great, but my driver sucks. And then as I start watching them hit their driver, I just see themselves, see them beat themselves up. And I'm like, it's actually your physical stuff needs some work. But how you operate yourself as a human being, it needs a ton of work also because you're not being very kind to yourself. And if we mm-hmm. look at it from a basic, like, human behavior and human um, conditioning standpoint, you have to condition yourself. You have to reward yourself. There's got to be some consequences as well. We're trying to alter human behavior. And if the only behavior that you're displaying is beating yourself up and being critical you're going to be a horrible golfer. It's just not going to work. So the mental game is integral for a total full performance. It's learning how to operate yourself. Yeah, and there's so many things that that can manifest in the physical game if the mind is not working correctly. For instance, a good example, everybody always assumes that tension is simply a result of squeezing the club too hard, and certainly that can be a factor. But a lot of times if there's a lot of things going on upstairs, whether it be things like depression or anxiety, um, maybe it's performance anxiety, uh, you know, throwing a word in there, choking, that sort of thing during the performance, um, because maybe, you know, your, your buddies are there or maybe you're playing in a pro-am and you're with a group that you're not normally with, so now you're a little bit nervous. So there's a lot of factors. I want you to touch on a few of them. Give us some examples of, of how that affects the golfer and what are some things that they can do to sort of help to overcome that. And I know you've touched on a little bit of it already, but I want you maybe to expand a little bit more if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a great starting point where you mentioned tension oftentimes is perceived as how tightly you're gripping the golf club, but tension shows up in the shoulders and the jaw. It comes from stress. It comes from worry and doubt. And I think there's a, a lot of different mental factors that come into play Sport psychology has listed the big five, if you will, things like how to regulate your emotions, whether you get happy, sad, angry, desolate, being able to regulate whatever you feel, not changing your feelings, but being just able to regulate it is a critical component to being an elite athlete. How to focus, how to concentrate. Our world right now is so distracted in fact, I'm, I'm worried for the junior golfers of, of today mm-hmm. because even playing in some of these AJGA events and these national events, they're required to do online scoring. So they're required to right. be on their phone while they're trying to compete. What's stopping them from getting into TikTok or looking at Instagram when there's a backup on the tee box? Being yep. able to focus and concentrate in the moment with what you're doing is a valuable skill. Um, confidence using imagery and visualization, can you see the shot before you actually hit it? Can you feel comfortable drawing a picture in your mind of what you'd like to do so the brain is cued in and ready to deliver that motor pattern? 
being able to to manage yourself as a human being is is so important. And most of the things that I see with players who come to me for mental coaching tend to be um, thoughts thoughts overtaking their minds. So a lot of busyness, a lot of chaos, and they call it the committee. There's a lot of people talking (laughs) out there trying to make decisions. Um, How to overcome bad holes. So letting go of a big number. Um, and then finally being able to close out a tournament. So when things are going really, really well, this is kind of different. When things are going really well, how do you finish the last three holes very strongly and not choke or give in uh, because you're worried about the outcome? So some of the solutions for that, we've talked about emotional regulation in the past, but um, being able to, what I say, have your 10 seconds of feel and deal. If you hit a shot that you aren't pleased with, take 10 seconds to feel whatever you're feeling. If it's anger, so be it. If you are depressed about it, so be it. But after 10 seconds, it's time to deal with it. And that's not that 10 seconds to feel and deal does not mean behaviorally act out, throw clubs, break your bag, right. say a curse word. It just means feel what you want to feel. Now it's time to do something with it. And uh, one of the options that I haven't talked about on this particular show is what's called box breathing. So if you've got 10 seconds of anger and it's time to move on because you've hit your 10 second limit, now you can start working on regulating your breath through box breathing to calm your nervous system. So if you imagine a box and it's four corners, four sides of it, you would breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, and hold your breath for four seconds. And by doing that several times, you start to gain control over yourself, your nervous system, your thoughts, your breathing. So if you're having a temper tantrum for 10 seconds, it will kind of bring you back (laughs) into more groundedness, a little bit more realism of what's happening. Um, As it pertains to focus and concentration, one thing that I'll ask my clients to do is ask themselves a question as they're approaching the golf ball. The brain loves to feed off questions. So if you ask it a question like, why do I suck so much at this game? It will certainly come up with some answers for you that you may not like. And then you're going to get into the self-criticism cyclone. But if you ask yourself the question, what's important now? The brain has focus and direction. Now we can start saying, well, let's get our yardage first. Let's figure out where the wind's blowing. What's a good target? What's a great club to match that target and yardage? Let's figure out a swing here. Let's see if I can create a movement that feels all right. Let's go through our routine and execute. So if you allow yourself the opportunity to bring yourself back to the present moment, ask yourself what's important now, then you'll start to find yourself being a bit more focused and engaged in what you're doing. After you hit the golf shot, you can go ahead and Think about something else, look at your scenery, talk to your playing partners, and, and so on. So those would be two tactics that would be helpful for, one, emotional regulation, and two, um, imagery and visualization. Those are some fantastic points, and I'm as we're speaking, I'm jotting down the, the box method here myself. I'm going to try that when I uh, next time I get out in the golf course. I think it's a great one to do. Um, I want to ask you, you, you sort of led into it just in your final uh, comment, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this, how we can go about doing this. You know, typically, 
certainly in a perfect world, uh, a full round, meaning 18 holes, might take four to four and a half hours. Obviously, I know sometimes it can be more depending on where you're playing and how busy the course is. Uh, you can't be dialed in your game for consistently for four and a half hours. You have to take a little bit of a break in between shots. What are some things that you could recommend? You kind of touched on a little bit um, that we can do. And the reason why I say this is, is if you try to focus on nothing but that golf for four and a half hours, it's going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be very taxing. Even the pros, um, I remember on a Sorenstam, I've mentioned this uh, on uh, the Women of Golf show uh, a few times, where you know she ran into that problem where she couldn't get out of the zone for just a few moments in between shots. And somebody suggested, um, it just happened she was, you know, um, doing some renovations in her home and said, you know, as you're walking down the fairway, maybe you could think about, you know, what are you going to do with your kitchen and then dial it back in when you're getting ready to do the next shot. Is that, is that something that you would recommend for everyday golfers to engage in something like that similar? Uh, or do you have something else that you could recommend um, that might be more efficient uh, in letting them to, obviously be in the moment of the game, but then also decompress a little bit in between shots. What, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, certainly I look at it like a gas tank. So if you're putting your, pre- your foot on the pedal and running your gas tank for four hours and a half or five hours if it takes longer, you're going to run out of fuel pretty quickly. But if I put my foot on the gas for a shot and then I take it off in between shots and then I put my foot on the gas for the next shot and then take it off, I'm going to have a much fuller tank by the end of the round. So I look at playing the round in small little increments. And typically if you're playing for four and a half hours, you shoot around 85. The calculation is you're actually playing golf for about 32 minutes and the rest is downtime. So there's, there's really not a reasonable expectation for you to be in the zone the entire round of golf. And it's probably not fun either. So I would start setting up a nice boundary for when do you want to begin to switch gears and get back into golf mode. So I call that the on switch. So on switch is when we're in golf mode. Off switch is when we're just kind of coasting and chilling and and uh, relaxing. So in on mode, you're certainly going through your pre-shot routine and assessing what you need to do, executing the shot, and a post-shot routine. When the switch goes off, now it's time to kind of refuel your, your tank or take your foot off the gas, essentially. And that could be in a non-talking or a talking state. You could talk to your playing partners. You could think about or sing your favorite song. Some people don't think at all, and they just observe the scenery. They might look at the trees around them. They might look at the grass cut. They might just take in the scenery without having any thinking whatsoever. If it's hard for you to do that and you notice that your thoughts are going down past shots, self-criticism, beating yourself up for the double bogey on the previous hole, then you do need to have some sort of focus in mind. And that could be what you're going to shop for at the grocery store later today. Or that could be fantasizing what your dream house would look like. By all means, keeping yourself busy. I really encourage my players to use that time to fill up the gas tank by being mindful not thinking about anything, but just mm-hmm. if you're walking, moving your body to the ball. If you're driving the golf cart, driving it to the next shot. And I look at that as a time to refuel and rejuvenate rather than be busy. 
but that can be hard for some personalities, and I get that. Um, but by all means, you don't have to be thinking about golf in between shots, only in the space of hitting the shot when you're in on mode. Yeah, and, and that, that's really the point I was getting at, is I think a lot of players think they have to be on all the time. And that's, you know, again, it, 18 holes is a lot of time uh, to be out on the golf course. And if you're not sort of giving yourself, uh, you know, uh, some time in between to sort of decompress a little bit and not get caught up um, in, in every shot. And, and the other thing, too, is if your mind is, is wandering on to, let's say, you know, you're on hole number three and, you know, hole number one, you hit a bad tee shot, or in hole number two, you were, you know, you missed the green and hit it in the water and, you know, had to take a stroke or what have you. Uh, if you're focusing in between the shots or even during the shot in preparation, if you're thinking of these negative things all the time, then it, it's just going to, you know, manifest into something worse as, as the round progresses. And, and sometimes what can be maybe a little bump or hiccup in, in the beginning of your round can ultimately end up into a, be a bad round because you're talking yourself into it. So self-talk is something else that I think is important as well, right? It's, it's really, really important. I mean, it's a reflection of our inner beliefs. And the tip that I give most people is if you were to verbalize the things that you actually say to yourself, would you say that to a seven-year-old child? Most everyone says never. I would never say those words to a, a seven-year-old child, especially those my own right. child. So then why is it okay for you to say it to yourself? Because those words are still going to stick. They're still going to have mm-hmm. meaning. They're not going to provide you any value, and they're going to take away from your confidence, from your belief system, from your feel-good. So the more self-critical we are, we don't learn from that. We don't grow from that. It only tears us down. So let's just stop it. You know, that's really interesting because I sort of equate it in the sense of um, somebody that's at the airport. You know, we see people schlepping their bags into the terminal and, you know, going down from terminal to terminal or from one end to the other, and they're pulling, you know, all of their baggage behind them. And that's what I see a lot of golfers do out there is mentally they're bringing all of the bad rounds, the bad holes, the bad shots, whatever the case is, with them. And it can be from two weeks ago. I mean, it's not even just in the current and present moment, sometimes it's the, the weekend they played, you know, or they're maybe in a corporate event again this year and last year, you know, their game just really wasn't up to snuff and they're thinking about all those negative things. So they're bringing that baggage with them, you know, right to the first tee. And that's obviously a, a recipe for disaster, right? It definitely is. That's a really great metaphor is bringing that baggage in uh, behind you. And the question that I would ask is, does it serve you? When you drag that luggage behind you and you bring all your baggage, all your poor shots, all the times you screwed up on the course, all the times you think you haven't been good enough, does that provide you value to make your next shot better? And nearly everyone says no. Okay, if that's not evidence enough to not bring that stuff with you, I don't know what else is. But we don't need that um, past history because it's not providing us any value. And sometimes people go as far as as carrying that baggage and focusing so intently on it that it then creates performance disruptions like the yips or a lot of fear and doubt-based swings. And then we have performance blocks that are a little bit more challenging to work with. And going back to the self-statements, the words that we say to ourselves have immense power 
So be careful how you use them towards yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, as you pointed out, you know, things like, um, you know, regulating your breath and, and things like that. Obviously, uh, some people gravitate to things like yoga. Obviously, I'm not suggesting this out in the golf course, but, you know, to, uh, you know, re- re- different relaxation techniques to be able to, um, again, regulate not just their breathing, but their whole um, physical body in that so that they're relaxed out in the golf course. Because what people don't factor in, and I think this is a trap that a lot of our hand, handicap, uh, high handicap golfers get into, is you can't change the past. The future hasn't happened yet, so all you have is now. And they forget that. They're thinking, you know, okay, well, I hit that rotten shot on this par three the last time I was here. I'm probably going to do that again. And they're standing on the tee and they're waiting, you know, for their turn. And that's what's, you know, playing through that, that mental uh, synopsis in their head. So as we sort of get ready to, to wrap up on this, I know you've given some great points. If somebody's really, because obviously you do assessments. When, when somebody comes to see you for the first time, you go through not just a physical assessment, but a little bit of a, a mental assessment as well. Walk us through that process. What are, things, what are you looking for? when you're talking with, with a new student, what is it you're trying to understand and how do you try to encourage them, uh, I guess is the best way to put it, from continuing down that negative path? What are some things that you do right from the get-go to try and get them to refocus in a different direction that's going to be more positive? Yeah, so um, my worlds are a little bit more separated. So I have my physical golf coaching business and then I have my private practice. So Um, Someone who's working on mental coaching, I may actually never see their golf swing ever. Um, There may be some people who come see me live in California, but a lot of the mental coaching clients, they might live in other states, and I may never see their golf swing at all. So I start with an introduction and an interview and start with what some of their pitfalls that they notice, and most everybody knows exactly where their weak spot is or the pieces that frustrate them the most on the golf course. I look at their history of play. I look at their golf trauma history. So if there's any sort of linkage between the performance disruption that they're experiencing now, could that be linked to something in their past that has been unprocessed or has been maybe stuck in their memory? Um, From there, I can start to look at what a treatment plan might look like. There may also be some symptomology of depression and anxiety that is more clinical-based particularly if there's an in-person component in California where I can practice psychotherapy, then we would look at some treatment plans for how that depression and how that anxiety or ADHD might play into their golf performance. So that's usually done with more of an intake process, but a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. It requires the client to be very insightful and very reflective on the times that they've played their worst and the times that they've played their their best. Now, from a physical standpoint, if a student comes and sees me for technical coaching, um, through the interview process, I look at all things that uh, they bring to the table, shot shape, challenging situations, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, when do they see themselves shine, when do they see themselves fail, how does their short game support them or not support them, what conditions on the golf course bring them the most fear. And then we can start working through a physical plan on how we need to improve the skill sets to master that. Then we might start to add in 
if they're willing, because some people see me just for physical coaching and they don't want any any business with the mental game at all. If they're open and willing, then we might start to look at how their mind either enhances or holds them back from being successful in those scenarios. A lot to unpack there. And I think, you know, there are so many factors, um, you know, as we, we touched on a number of them tonight, that go into becoming an accomplished player. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, an athletic player or a top caliber player, but just to really understand the nuances of this game. Is it not, it's not just a matter of, you know, hitting it down the middle of the fairway. There's so many other factors involved as well. And uh, the, the mental side of the game is just as important, if not more important, than the physical side. Because if, you, if your mind is not in a good place, um, for whatever reason, whether it's, it's the game itself that's causing problems, you know, mentally, as we talked about, you know, dragging that, that baggage from you know, several rounds ago and, and or even last, uh, you know, the last hole, or you know, whether there's other outside influences, family life, things like that, that have caused depression. It's important that you understand that. And I think this is where somebody like yourself that's trained uh, as a professional can really help them unpack some of that. And obviously, if there's um, you know, more severe issues um, that need to be dealt with, and obviously, you know, further steps might be taken. But I think people overlook that um, uh, area of the game a lot and think it's just a matter of, well, if I just, you know, stand up here and think positively, I'm going to be okay. But there's a lot more to really delve into, and I think we've touched on some things here tonight. What are your final thoughts that you want to leave with the audience tonight? And then we'll give them the website again so they can uh, get some information uh, and, uh, and get in touch with you. I would add that the mental game is a skill just as you look at a putting as being a skill, you look at driving as being a skill or bunker play as a skill. Mental game is a big title for a whole bunch of mental game skills. And for those who choose to work with me and improve their mental game, you don't have to just work on those skills during your golf season. In fact, some of the best times to work on those skills is in your off season so that you can really strengthen, learn, and reflect um, so that those skills are ready to go when your golf season comes up. There's a lot of great golf psychology books out there. Just read one of them, and you'll start to improve your mental game because the awareness and the um, (laughs) concepts in there, I don't care which one you read, but just read one of them because it'll certainly open up your mind to some better ways to perform. And if you're finding yourself in a rut and you feel like you've got the technical part really going, but you're just not performing well, then it might be time to look at working with a mental coach to help point you in the right direction. Yeah, and that, and, and the earlier the better. You know, if you're a junior golfer out there or if you're the parent of a junior golfer um, that has aspirations of, of playing, you know, maybe collegiately or what have you uh, or beyond, um, that's an area that they're going to have to be dealing with. There's a lot of anxiety that these youngsters uh, deal with. It's outside pressures that the peers and whatnot they've got to deal with. It's not just what happens on the golf course. So you're exactly right. And uh, I think uh, reading a, a good um, book like that is certainly a great place to start or reaching out to somebody like you and, uh, you know, that can maybe help them a little bit more. So um, just to let the folks know, if you want to get in touch with Allison or if you want to learn more about what it is that she does, not just on the physical game, but on the mental game as well, you can go to her website. It's allisonkurtgolf.com. That's allisonkurtgolf.com. And all of the information is there, all of her social media contact. And if you want to email her, you can do that right from her website and get in touch with her. I know she'd be happy to help you. 
And if you want to learn more about her perspective on the mental game, uh, then you want to subscribe to Golf Tips Magazine. She has a regular feature now uh, in Golf Tips uh, on the mind game, as well as some uh, teaching tips as well. So you can do that, and I'll tell you how to do that uh, in a moment. Um, or you can reach out to her uh, through her website. But, Allison, thank you very much for, for coming on tonight and being my special guest on Coach's Corner. It's been fun and interesting, and uh, hopefully the audience has uh, learned a few more tips that they can take out and help them on the golf course, not just with the physical game, but with the mental game as well. But thank you very much for, for coming on tonight. My, my pleasure, Ted. It was a fantastic conversation, and thank you for doing this and having me on as a, as a guest. Appreciate you. Not a problem. You have a great uh, rest of your week and weekend, and don't work so hard. Take some time for yourself and get out there and play. <laughs> Will do. Take care. All right. Thanks, Allison. Bye-bye. All right. That was uh, Dr. Allison Kurt, uh, again, special guest, uh, member of the Top 25 Instructors of uh, Golf Tips Magazine, uh, just a great uh, golf professional. She's both an LPJ and PJ Master Professional, uh, so she's well-trained and also a, uh, a doctor who has been trained in clinical psychology, so she knows how to work uh, the mind upstairs as well and helping you with your game. But, um, again, go to alisonkurtgolf.com. That's alisonkurtgolf.com, and you can reach out and get more information on her there. All right, before I bring on my next very special guest, here's a quick message, speaking of which, Golf Tips Magazine. We'll be right back. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget and so much more don't miss a single issue go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today all right welcome back and uh, very excited to have this gentleman on he was on the show hard to believe but it's been a few years and uh, i'm very grateful that he was able to uh, uh, join me tonight and actually he was scheduled a little bit earlier this year and uh, ran into a couple of uh, issues at the time and we had to reschedule. And unfortunately, this was the earliest I could get him on because he's busy. I'm busy, but here we are. Let me introduce him and then I'll bring him on for uh, a great discussion tonight. Of course, I'm talking about Dave Bisbee. He is the general manager and director of golf at the Seven Canyons Golf Club in Sedona, Arizona. And with more than 40 years of experience, Dave is renowned for his easygoing style and innovative methods, helping thousands of golfers gain greater satisfaction through their improved performance. Known by his peers as a teacher of teachers, uh, he has pioneered a system linking mind, body, and golf. Uh, he's al- also authored several books, including uh, the best-selling Back on Course, Drive Business Performance Through Golf, teaching business professionals to leverage the game to do uh, to uh, business advantage as well. So please welcome back to the show my very special guest, Dave Bisbee. Good evening, Dave. Welcome. Hey, Ted. Hey, Ted. Uh, great to, uh, to be back. It, it did take a little while. Yeah, <laughs> to get me back there. <laughs> I'm glad I, I was looking at it. I was looking at it the other day, and I realized, and I was going back. And um, I know earlier this season we had you scheduled in, and, and uh, obviously there was a, a little bit of a mix-up. But um, but I was looking back, and the last time you were on was actually back in, I believe, April 
of 2017. And I thought, wow, I can't believe that. I always enjoyed it. Wow. And, and, yeah, I know. <laughs> We're getting old is what yeah, I'm politely right. trying to say. <laughs> but I'm glad to have you back and, and on the show. So let's talk about Seven Canyons. A, a couple of things I know that you want to uh, talk about. And um, they just did a, a, a $4.5 million golf course renovation. Uh, and I believe I don't know whether you're, it's completed yet or whether you're still in, in sort of the final stages, but talk about that. So that's, that's a pretty big number uh, to be throwing out there. So what were some of the things that were going on and what specifically on the golf course uh, are you guys upgrading or have you upgraded? Well, it, yeah, it's been quite a, uh, quite a process. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic Tom Weisskopf design golf course. And, um, it you know we've been it, it's been around now for a little over 20 years so things like bunkers and irrigation systems and key boxes mm-hmm. you know everything kind of starts to to show its age um and uh, and and like a lot of clubs uh, kind of going through the you know the, the economic downturns and things like that there was a little bit of sure. uh, neglect that that happened um mm-hmm. we were lucky enough uh, to have Tom up here last year uh, in uh, in May uh, before uh, he unfortunately passed away uh, to right. um, to kind of sketch out this master plan and the master plan included uh, redoing all the bunkers uh, we removed um, about twelve bunkers from the course um, and then uh, brought all of the uh, elevations and all those things back to uh, the original uh, design elevations and uh, put cap capillary flow. I think that's what they like to call it now instead of capillary concrete. Um, right. In in uh, as the liner systems uh, in the buckers and and went back to our Augusta White uh, sand um, and Wadsworth uh, Golf is who the construction company that we're using uh, done a fantastic job and then Phil Smith, who's Tom's. Uh, uh, was Tom's design partner. Um, right. Phil has been very, uh, very involved uh, from the architectural side uh, in just overseeing this. But complete bunker renovation, uh, a total irrigation um, system redo, including pump station, every head, every line, uh, all of that, um, and then stripping and laser leveling all of the tee boxes. Uh, so other than you know, fairways and roughs, uh, the, golf, the golf course really has pretty much been redone. Uh, we're kind of in the last stages right now of the, uh, uh, the tee box uh, renovation, and, and we're also changing the grass uh, on the tee boxes. We'll have bent grass uh, tee boxes for the surfaces. Uh, and we built, uh, Ted, the most unbelievably uh, fantastic short game area uh, that um, kind of sets in the middle of the course. And we created around that seven tee stations where you can play to a central green on the short game area. Uh, and we're calling that Tom's Secret Seven. Um, but uh, it, that that became integral to us flipping the nines. We've rerouted the golf course for the fifth and final time. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a busy uh, year and a half um, 
uh, with all of the golf course. We're calling it a restoration, not a renovation. Right. And that is a lot of uh, work. What's unique about Tom's uh, uh, design style? I mean, there's so many of the, the golfers out there, obviously Nicholas and, and others that have their mm-hmm. own style. What was unique about Tom Weiskopf's style? Uh, I always liked him as a player, and I know he yeah. was a phenomenal player, but what was different about his approach than, than maybe some of the others out there? Well, kind of a, a unique thing with this particular project is he said no like five times. Uh, he thought that the site was too tight, uh, too small for the building envelopes that he likes to, to, to use. Um, Phil actually came up uh, to placate the eventual developer uh, to, to kind of walk it. And uh, he, it, it, it is in a remote little box canyon, so you don't have any cell mm-hmm. coverage back there. So he, he drove back into cell coverage and said, Tom, get on the <laughs> plane, get up here. You've got to see this piece of ground. It's, it's, it's the most unbelievable piece of ground you'll, we, we've ever had the opportunity to do something on. Tom got in the plane, came up there, spent 20 minutes on the ground, and called the developer and said, I'll do it. Um, and what happened was he, we, he didn't really have time to utilize his normal design process. Uh, they were right. running up against things like uh, entitlements for water and that kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to be running out. So he walked it, sketched it, and, and did it really old school, um, you know, without CAD systems and all of that. Uh, just would walk it, say this is where a T-complex is going to be, this is where a fairway is going to go, a bunker sets here, and really sketched it out hole by hole uh, and uh, and made it. He wanted to, wanted to kind of harken back to some of the old um, classic courses here in the U.S. It's not overly long, uh, not long right. by any stretch, but – very strategic, uh, and has a links feel. There's a lot of movement that happens on the ground. So when you hit, you're hitting shots into greens, the surrounds kind of run, there are runoffs and there are places where you can, you know, back a, back a ball off of a, uh, off of the side of a green and work it back down toward the pin. There's just, a, there's a lot of really unique elements, uh, to it. And in this, in a setting that's, it's, unbelievable you know and and i think what i like about um a lot of what you just said in in relationship to to the course itself is you know that it's not overly long um that's been sort of Mm -hmm. a pet peeve of a lot of golfers out there for a number of years and you know it's great to take a, a piece of land and and you know go to the tips and and you've got you know 7500 plus yards and it sounds exciting, yep. but the truth of the matter is, most of our high handicap players, as you know, as a you know, as a, a, a premium uh, instructor, is that they can't play it. So it, yeah. it's really mm-hmm. you know, who are they building it for? So I like the fact that you know his approach was really not to uh, you know have this behemoth of a golf course, but at the same time, uh, it may not have been as long as some others out there, but he certainly left enough challenge in it. Um, to test even you know some of the best players out there, um, while at the same time making it uh, feasible for those that maybe don't always hit the ball straight and, and right down the fairway have a chance to be able to have some success as well. Would that be accurate? 
That would be very accurate. And, and it's interesting, you know, where we are, we're 90, uh, 90 miles north of, you know, Phoenix, Scottsdale. Uh, and we get a lot of the guys that uh, play, um, you know, the, the some of the tour players, some of the guys from the Valley that will run up here to uh, take a lap around this golf course. And, they'll, you know, you look at the scorecard, and from the tips, it's just a little under 6,900 yards from the tips. And, you know, they're just thinking, well, I'm just going to hit driver and wedge all day. And um, they may hit some wedges, but it's to pitch back out into – the fairway because they've <laughs> right um, it, it's yeah it's a very stri- uh, strategic uh, golf course i call it you know it's point to point you got to get from yeah you you hit a club that puts you in a position to go point a to point b to b to c uh and and i've been up here since the very very beginning and uh, i can tell you uh, you change the pen placement on the green it changes the way the golf course plays uh, you play a different set of tees, it plays, it changes the way the course plays. And one of the things in the new design, the restoration, uh, is we're building six uh, additional tee boxes. So we're creating more spaces for um, newer golfers or golfers who are kind of getting up in age and don't hit it as far. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but we're we're trying to accommodate, you know, as many skill levels as we can but the, the golf course itself, it's all really about strategy, and the green complexes are very punishing if you, if, you, uh, if you miss, you know, especially if you miss on the wrong side. And, and that's important, I think, for uh, a golf course. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, we see a lot of um, certainly some great resort courses out there in that, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's hundreds of them. Um, but they're – they're challenging to a large segment of the population. In fact, too challenging. And it's not, and then therefore it's not enjoyable. And, and I think, you know, I remember yeah. watching some very early, yeah, some very early videos that Tom Weisskopf had done uh, instructional that he would, you know, talk about his game and, and how he approached things. And he was, you know, somebody that played very strategically that shot, you know, from point A to point B more or less. And, and, you know, he didn't just sort of grip it and rip it and hit it out there. He was very methodical in how he approached it. So I'm not surprised yeah. that he, you know, developed a course that fit along that mindset um, th- that he, you know, played with uh, throughout his career. So, you know, kudos to him. And, and it's uh, obviously we're, we're very sad to, to miss him. Um, and and uh, I, I know you've had obviously opportunities over the years to uh, uh, to get to uh, to know him maybe personally a little bit more and that. But, uh, you know, he was just a, a great player in his in his day. And, and I enjoyed and I loved his his videos because he he was one that would tell you like it is. And and uh, but he was, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and that that's sometimes what we need out there. But uh, obviously, him, and, and again, not to negate uh, his partner, uh, uh, Phil Smith, obviously, uh, was involved, uh, especially towards the end there. But uh, um, so, what's been some of the feedback from the membership? I mean, you've got uh, you know you're you're trying to keep the members excited about it. Obviously, you know there was construction going on, and that can be uh, sometimes a little bit uh, unsettling when you're out there and you've got things going on. And <laughs> yeah. that. so, how do you keep them excited about that? What what do you do? And and they know well the end game is it's going to be a better course, but in the process, uh, sometimes it can be. And again, you had you know, things with the, with the pandemic and, and, uh, and, and economy and whatnot uh, sort of slowed things yeah. down and throw in some occasionally some bad weather over the winter and that kind of slowed the guys down too. So 
talk a little bit about that. How did you keep uh, the spirits up at, at uh, Sedona, at the Seven Canyons? Well, the, the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure you get some really great renderings done. So, so, so everybody's <laughs> going to know what it's going to look like when it's done. Um, and, you know, you, you show those to them anytime there's a little bit of a, um, you know, a little impatience with. But we, we challenged um, uh, Wadsworth. We, we really challenged them with, look, we don't want to close. We don't even want to close nine holes. We want to k- keep as many holes open as we can. And we'll work in these clusters. So, you know, three holes, two holes, three holes. And we had to work our way um, through it that way. And one of the unique features for our club is that we have this fractional ownership um, product that's there, which means those people get 28 days of block time in their villa. And you didn't want to be telling those people who happen to have those days, well, I'm sorry, the, you know, the golf course is not going to be open while you're here. Um, so that was, that was part of the challenge. And, um, and, and we did have, we had a record breaking, uh, last year, um, colder, wetter. Uh, we had several, um, eight to 10 inch snowfalls, which is just really rare for us. Uh, but these guys, they just, they just kept right on going. Um, they were doing the irrigation and the bunkers um, and the design and, and construction of this short game area uh, all simultaneously while all of that stuff was going on. So, you know, the members, we, we, we really gave them a good idea several months ahead of what it was going to be like and kind of what our plan was, how we were going to try to do it. And I, I think what it did for members was it was really exciting for them to come up on a, a hole, see what the process was for ripping out the bunker, relining it, putting in the new stuff, uh, to kind of really see it happening in real time. Um, and, and, you know, by the time we got done, uh, we were really coming coming into uh, our spring season, um, and and the golf course just really responded. You know, the new irrigation system uh, <laughs> w- w- really tightened things up. The uh, uh, the bunkering was pretty dramatic in in you know how bunkers over time will get contaminated, and you know they might have started with a white sand, and now they're kind of a brownish reddish <laughs> color. Um, the, the, the stark contrast, uh, to an, a new bunker compared to an old bunker was amazing. Uh, and right now the, the, it's a, it is a, a faded memory that we even inconvenienced them with that because it's uh, golf course is just in fantastic condition. Well, and, and I'll, I'll... You know, it's it's like the old saying: "There's always a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow," and it's just a matter of, of you know finding it. And uh, you know, it, yeah. it takes time, and 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 people understand that. Now, I'm just curious from from a personal standpoint: um, Do they tackle it nine holes at a time? Like, do you do they kind of say, "Okay, we're going to shut the back nine down and and work on that first, and let let the members play on the front nine a little bit, or?" Or is it just sort of here's what we're going to do, and it could be you know some on both uh, front and back nine, or how does it work? 
Well, uh, because of you know you, you're you're hauling sand out, you're you're hauling new sand in. You we had to get concrete trucks into these places to to pump um, uh, the uh, the capillary uh, liners in. Um, so what we would do is we would try to to take uh, our, on paper, it looked like we were going to do this in three-hole tranches, right? Six right, three-hole right. tranches, and we're done. And then in actuality, um, <laughs> once, once you got out there and, and started working, it, it became where we would, um, again, weather challenged us. We couldn't get sod, and sod needed, we needed to have sod to go around the collars of the new bunkers because you didn't want anything contaminating the sand once we put it in there. Uh, right. And so we were we were robbing. Uh, we turned our driving range into a sod farm. So we were robbing mm. sod from there to to take out to to put around the collars of these, so we could go ahead and finish the the uh, the faces and the, and the collars around these bunkers. Um, and these guys were so flexible and so responsive. Uh, we just would we'd show up in the morning and go okay. What's the T-sheet look like? What's the weather going to do to us? Let's hit these nice. ones. And, and that's really how it worked. Our superintendent and, and crew, our crew uh, were cutting sod from the, uh, from the practice facility, bringing it out to where they were working on the golf course. Uh, it, was, it, it looked like a very well-orchestrated, well-planned thing, but it was really just chaos and um, – and everybody coming together. <laughs> right. Well, no, nothing ever goes, I don't care how well prepared you are, nothing ever comes off 100% the way you think it's going to. Again, you throw a little weather in there, you throw, you know, some other uh, elements as well, um, you know, economically and whatnot, things just, just happen. And, and um, you know, so there's always going to be some factors in there, but you, you do what you can. And, and I think most of I'm sure – you're always going to get a, a few rumblers here and there, but I think now when they look back and they see it um, and they see what the, the end result is, um, you know, suddenly those, those bad memories sort of hopefully quickly fade oh, yeah. away and, and they're yeah. out there enjoying, uh, enjoying themselves and, and the beautiful scenery yeah. and that as well. But uh, you no, I think, I think that's uh, fantastic and it's always exciting. Um, you know, uh, I know that you're exciting because you're you're out there all the time and you get to see um, in the trenches as you were uh, to see what's going on, and it's exciting to see the, the end result. So, Dave, if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is I'm going to give them the, the website in a little bit. I don't want them to leave yet. I want everybody to be listening, and then I'm going to give them some companions' uh, website and let them go on and uh, check things out. And uh, but what I thought we would do is we would talk a little bit of instruction. These are just some basic things. Um, you know, many, many times uh, golfers are, are confused with what's right and what's wrong when trying to improve, uh, you know, the various parts mm -hmm. of their game. And so here's some examples I want you to just touch on. Uh, again, I know we don't have the, the you know, uh, aspects of the visual component, but I think you can do a good job of, of explaining things uh, so that people will understand in a simplified way. Uh, but here's a few key factors that golfers need to achieve to help their overall impro uh, improvement. So let's talk about driving, because this is one that stymies, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of our high handicappers. And sure, in order for them to be successful, they need to properly set up. So what are some keys that you can 
maybe suggest to them if they're setting up for their tee shot, what should they be doing, and more importantly, what shouldn't they be doing? Well, you know, all of my instruction starts with where is it, what's the ball do? Uh, what what do you what does the shot shape tend to be for for you? <clears throat> and you know, very often we find golfers who slice the ball, uh, who um, adapt a little, you know, aim left uh, to at least get the ball started there because they know it's going to curve back. Uh, so aim and alignment is is just such a big thing, and I and I I stress that a lot with with students. Um, get a couple of sticks on the ground, whether it's two shafts uh, with, uh, you know, your golf clubs uh, or alignment sticks. Um, get a good reference point when you're practicing so that you know what it looks like when you're lined up correctly. Uh, that that can, you know, affect everything else uh, once you're on the golf course. Um, and, uh, you know, architects love to draw your eye to to where they – they want you to go, not necessarily where you ought to go. And right. and so golfers, again, being able to take the time to get aimed and aligned correctly, you know, find your your spot where you want that ball to finish uh, and and take the time to, to get aimed and aligned correctly. Great point. Um, I, I think sometimes the simpler you can make it, the better it's going to be. And I think first mm-hmm. off, you have to have a game plan. You've got to know where you want the ball to go, um, and then sort of work back from there. And I, I think, yeah. you know, sort of assessing, um, you know, everybody gets up there and they just sort of plug it in and they don't really put a lot of thought into it. And they say, well, okay, I'm just wanting, yeah. you know, I just want to hit it straight and what have you. And they don't really think about, they don't look at the shape of the hole. They don't think about, okay, where's my likelihood? I, you know, I was talking with Allison, who was uh, on earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. And I second was show. on a little bit of that. You yeah. Did? Yeah. And, uh, I and and she's really good. And, and what I always like to equate, uh, as maybe some others do, I don't know if you use this sort of, you may use a, a little bit different uh, language, but I look at it as from a percentage. So when I'm, you know, when I'm talking to a student, I say, okay, what's the percentage? What's the likelihood of success on this particular shot? So if you're up in the tee and you're not, maybe you're a chronic slicer, you know, what's the likelihood you're going to be able to keep this ball? Is it, you know, 70%, is it 50%, or is it 30%? And once you understand the percentage of how likely you are to pull that shot off, uh, then I think you need to work back from there and say, okay, maybe the driver isn't the best club for me. Maybe I need right to dial club, it back. Yeah. Right, exactly. Is it the right club for me? So there's a lot of factors. So I think a good assessment, and you can do this very quickly, and this is something obviously you can practice on the, on the practice tee, um, not on the course. You don't, you want to be ready on the course, but so there's a lot of factors, but I, I like what you said as well as it's alignment is a big problem as they get out there and they're just swinging for the Hills and they figure they got this big wide fairway. And the next thing you know, they're in the, the weeds or the, you know, the trees or whatever. <laughs> so I, I think you have to look at uh, a lot of different aspects, but I think you need to ask yourself, what's the percentage, what's the likelihood that I'm going to be able to hit a good shot that's going to keep me in play. And if it's a low percentage, in other words, if it's a high risk, then you need to reassess and look at another option. Would you agree with that, you think? Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and another good point there, as you were talking about that, that is uh, the, uh, the golf course architect designs the hole from the green back to the tee. And then he yep. leaves it to us as golfers to play it from the tee to the green. And they design it where the green, the greens complex is such that it's, it accepts a certain type of shot shape, right? 
mm-hmm. and they yep. they go back to that part of the fairway, and that becomes the widest part of the fairway. It's the it's the part that they're inviting you to to hit it to, and then they go back to the tee, and then we stand up and look at I'm I'm going to hit a driver, I'm going to hit it as far as I can, and then I'm going to deal with what's left. Right. And what you really do when you do that is you're playing right into the architect's hands, you know. It's uh, and and so you yeah if you assess one your chances of, of hitting that fairway with a driver in your hand versus a tree wood or something else, uh, and then you look at the at the way that the hole sets up, uh, you know wh- where does this next shot need to come from? It's not it's not where that people need to go. It's like so where does the next shot need to come from? to have a good chance to get it on the green. Um, and if you start thinking like an architect, you start playing the, the hole backwards uh, and makes you make different decisions. Yeah, and, and, and again, it comes to really an assessment of really understanding. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to understand your abilities, and, and you can work a lot of that out on the practice tee and obviously working with, the, with your local professional. Um, but once you have an understanding of what your ball flight typically is and and what your your strengths are uh then you play to those strengths and but you have to make decisions and a lot of times people just get up there and i understand with newer golfers it's a little bit more they're not a seasoned, they haven't really figured a lot of this stuff out so that that's where they really need to be working with a professional to help them put a game plan together to work with the game that they've got and then improve the areas that need improving along the way um i want to yeah. skip to iron play because this is a nemesis this is another nemesis for a lot of our high handicap, you know, they want to become a better iron player. They're hitting one shot fat. The next one's thinning out, you know, one slicing <laughs> over here. Maybe the next one's a duck hook or, you know, what have you. Um, how do I achieve solid content? How do I get to become an a, a accomplished iron player and consistent so that I'm stepping up there? I may not hit it as far every single time, but by gosh, I want to make sure I'm making good contact. What are some good keys here to remember? Well, I think if if a if a golfer understands that posture is really what creates angles, um, how you set up and and create you know the forward tilt with the upper body uh, compared to the knee flex, um, most golfers and most of the people that I teach um, tend to sit down. You know, there's there's a more knee knee, uh, knee bend than there needs to be, which gets the upper body erect, uh, and then they have to either chase the arms up. Uh, to try to create the angle, or the club naturally swings too flat around. So finding that that proper posture uh, so that the club swings on the uh, proper plane angle, um, that's a that's a big one. And you know you hear them talking a lot on uh, the tour uh, guys talking about staying in their posture uh, through impact, yes. and and we see so many of that, so much of that uh, on, the, on the amateur side and, and on the, you know, the people that we teach that they'll lose that angle, which destroys how the club contacts the ball relative to the ground. Uh, yep. So, you know, that I, I think understanding how posture affects that angle and what proper posture really is. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember, uh, this is going back several years, but, um, you know, when we were using more video now, you know, with technology, there's so many other things that we can use and look at, but, you know, I can remember videotaping and I looked at it after and, you know, in the back swing, their head was lifting, you know, three or four inches, they were coming out of, out of their posture yep. and then it was driving back down, you know, and, and, and 
you know, dropping not just the three or four inches they originally, but then they're actually now going down an extra inch or two. And, you know, their head was just bobbing up and down. And obviously there is going to be some, some movement um, in the swing. But when you start seeing them coming in and out of posture to that extent, and it's never consistent, um, you're going to hit those fat shots or you're going to hit them thin because you obviously know you're coming down in and, you, you know, you're sort of standing erect a little bit more. And now you're, you know, you're coming over top and, and uh, all kinds of things happen. So um, you've got to make sure you stay in that posture. So are there some things that you try to, are there drills? I know you can't show them right now, and we can certainly, I don't know if you have some videos on the site there that they can check out or on a, another channel, but yeah. um, what are yeah. some, some tips that you can give them to, to help them keep in that posture? Well, first is, you know, what, what is a correct posture to look like. And um, so I'll, I'll get uh, golfers on the practice tee. Um, uh, and, and video is a, is a, it's a great way to uh, convince somebody that the difference between feel and real. Um, you know, somebody feels like I'm really sitting up and tilting forward. I'm in a, I'm in a good uh, posture. And then you bring it back and show them that it looks like they're sitting on a bar stool. And that, that's one of the things that from our, from our, um, our past um, uh, kind of teaching tomes when they said, you know, you should set up like you were sitting on a bar stool. I've always said that that's great for drinking beer, but it really doesn't have anything to do with this golf ball that's <laughs> on the ground. Um, right. but, but getting them a, a good clear picture in their mind and then being able to relate that to a feel um, and then I, I talk a lot about the sternum, uh, that, you know, the, the, the sternum needs to continue to point down as you cover through impact. If, if you can feel like your sternum is pointing down and, and turning uh, through, that's a great way for them to kind of feel and visualize what staying in that proper posture is like. Gotcha. Um, another area that a lot of people uh, seem to miss the boat on uh, is ball position. There's a lot of different camps, If you uh, even amongst the instructors. Mm. Some instructors like to keep the ball yeah. position uh, in one area, and it's just a matter of moving the feet and, and uh, adjusting. Others like to, you know, as an example, maybe play the wedges, uh, maybe even their nine iron around the middle of the stance, and then move the ball up, uh, you know, a little bit for each uh, uh, group of clubs into their mid irons, and then right up to the driver off the left heel. So, in your way of thinking, based on your experience, what have you found to be the most effective with your students? Is it better, in your opinion, to keep the ball in one position and then obviously just adjust the width of your stance? Um, or do we need to move it up or back, depending on the club we're playing? Well, this might sound a little um, strange, especially without being able to kind of show it visually, but... If, if you can imagine that your clubs didn't have heads on them, you just have straight shafts of varying lengths, the tip end of the shaft should point pretty much in the center of your of your stance. Um, again, kind of right off the sternum. And then you start to put club heads on, on those shafts. Um, most irons have some uh, negative face progression. In other words, the leading edge of the club is a little behind the shaft. So that naturally would put the ball a little further back uh, in the stance. Uh, if you have more, if you have progressive offset, they would move just a little bit. I tend to tell people, if you set the club on the ground, stand to the hand a little, put the ball in the position that it should be 
in your stance. And then as you move up in clubs, when you think of going to the hybrids or, or going to fairway metals or going to a driver, there's face progression. In other words, the leading edge is in front of the shaft. Right. So that ball position should naturally move forward with those clubs. Uh, but it isn't to the degree that people tend to think. You know, the, the, the old thing was you'd put the driver up off of the left toe and you'd put the, the wedge in the, in the back part of the stance. Um, and um, that, you know, both of those are incorrect. Uh, if, if you get the, the ball too far forward with the driver to put your trail hand on the club, your shoulders go across the line, and now you're, you're kind of forced into swinging the club from out to in across the, the line when you, when you swing. Uh, and if you put the wedge too far back, it sets the right shoulder too far inside in the setup, and you're swinging too much from in to out. So I, I always try to get people to, to think about uh, put the handle of the club right at the center of your uh, body, and, um, and then when you set the club behind the ball, that'll position the ball where it should go in your stance. Perfect. Well said. Um, here's one that people don't really think about, and I'm just, uh, again, some may not really focus on this, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Uh, and, and I'm referring to eye contact. Where should the eyes be focused? And I'll give you a couple of examples. For the driver, let's say, should we be looking at the back of the ball when we're setting up and ready to hit our tee shot or, or somewhere else? And for most irons, especially standard iron shots, maybe should they be looking at the front of the ball? I've heard those theories passed around over the years as well. Mm-hmm. That sometimes you should be looking at the, the back of the ball uh, for the driver because you're on an upswing there. You're not hitting down on the ball. And for the irons, uh, again, to help with uh, making some good contact, you're looking maybe at the front of the ball. So what are your thoughts? Uh, do you agree with that sort of camp, or, or do you have another uh, uh, way of, of uh, approaching it? Well, we're making an assumption here, Ted, that people have their eyes open. Right. So, That's so, true. <laughs> uh, I just kind of waited, waited for the, the delay on that. So my, <laughs> my, my political answer to that is it depends. A lot of times right. where I have people who have, a, have trouble um, figuring out uh, you know, where the, where the swing path should be. If, if I've got people who are chronically from outside to inside, I'm trying to get them to feel, you know, to, to visualize more on the inside of the ball. I'll tell them, you know, you take the sight line on the ball just like you were putting, right? Uh, set it on the, on the ground, right. point it a little bit from the inside to the outside, and your eyes should focus on the inside quarter of that ball, not on the back of the ball, and definitely not on the outside quarter. Um, and then for some, I'll tell them, you know, our, uh, being human and playing this game is what makes it hard because there are certain things that we do naturally uh, that battle what we need to do when we're hitting a golf ball. And what I mean by that is you, you look at people making, you know, they'll make a perfect practice swing. I'll say, I, I just want you to make a practice swing by the side of it and find a little bit of turf on the way through. And they'll do that. Then you walk to the golf ball and catch the very top of the golf ball and touch no turf. And what I'll, what I'll do with people like that, I'll say, so just think about what described to me when you're looking at the ground, when you're making a practice swing, what are you looking at? And they'll say, well, I'm looking at the ground and you hit the ground. So if you go to the ball, describe to me what you're looking at at the ball. 
And they'll go, well, I'm just looking at the ball. I said, well, where specifically? Well, the top of it. And I go, Ed, you're hitting the top of the ball. So what if you focus your eyes, uh, you set the club far enough behind the ball so you can see a little grass behind there, focus your eyes there and mm-hmm. try to take that turn. And poof, right, right off the bat, right. they're all of a sudden by the bottom of the ball. So I'll, I'll use those visual cues on the ball to create an effect you know, in the, in the swing. But um, I think to, to your point, um, because you want to be a little flatter through the ball with the driver, I look a little bit more toward the back of the ball, especially the back inside of the ball. If I'm hitting a yeah. pitch shot, if I'm hitting a chip shot, something like that, and I want a little more angle, I might look at the front of the ball uh, so I'm catching it a little more descending. Yeah, well said. Um, and speaking of chipping, this is another area we see all kinds of uh, – uh, variations on the chip shot um, mm-hmm. techniques and and uh, some kind of adopt a little bit of a putting technique, if you will, and others kind of, you know, take a, a grab and stab shot at, at things. And, and again, everybody is different. I, I yeah. get that, right? You know what I'm talking about. Um, everybody's yeah, different sure. and, and there's always some room for, uh, you know, for some flexibility. But is there generally a, a, a common technique, a chipping technique that um, a sort of a go-to technique, if you will, that you recommend. And then if somebody wants to be, you know, as they get more proficient, wants to make some adjustments that suit their own personal style, that's fine. But is there something that, that you know is sort of tried and true when it comes to chipping? Yeah, and, and Ted, you know this too. I mean, angle is everything around the greens. Um, you want to make sure you're mm-hmm. catching ball turf, not the other way around, turf ball. Uh, and you're trying to catch the bottom of the ball, so you get a little bit of air air time to get it up over the fringe or whatever. Um, so uh, the the mistakes I see people making are uh, one getting their alignment things off. I mean, you see people there's a you know some somebody heard somewhere that you should have an open stance, uh, so right. they tend to get you know a really open stance, and then they have to open the club face, and then they so they get all these different angles going. Um, and, uh, and I think the, what I try to do is I try to get them squared up, feet close together, mm-hmm. squared up, ball in the center, get your weight forward. That means taking your sternum and putting it on the target side of the ball. When you do that, it gets your shoulder set at a little uh, angle where the lead shoulder is a little lower than the trail shoulder, and that naturally gets that club working up and down. And uh, and then if if they can get that sense of setup to create angles, uh, then it just takes a little experimentation for them to find you know marrying loft and trajectory and roll and all right. of that. Uh, but that that basic setup, getting the lines squared up, getting things more um, uh, you know I, I guess it'd be less. Um, complicated by standing way open and, and trying to, you know, throw a ball up in the air. I want to go back just one second because I want you to explain something. Because, and again, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. Um, you, you know, you mentioned in, in part of the setup is you know uh, keeping a more of a square uh, stance as opposed to opening and opening the blade. Uh, you know, and getting all mm-hmm. kinds of angles. And, and I agree 100% with that. And then you talk about really moving the weight more. And again, we're talking about for right-handed golfers, obviously for left, you do the opposite, yep. but um, getting that weight a little bit more on the front uh, or lead foot. If you were to put it in a percentage, how much 
percentage should should be on the front foot as opposed to the back foot. The reason why I ask that is a lot of people misinterpret that and they actually just lean their upper body. They don't really actually yeah. put, move, shift the weight. And there's a difference exactly. because when they when yeah. they lean over, what ultimately ends up happening is now they're driving that club face uh, leading edge into the back and thumping it into the ground. They're not actually making good solid contact. Yeah. So there's a difference there. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit better what you mean by that so people really get uh, a grasp on it? So for chip shots, uh, I'll tell them it's about 70-30. 70, 70, 70 on the lead, lead foot, 30 on the back foot. And it, and it stays there throughout the motion. Um, what, what you'll see a lot, especially when people lean too much on the target side, is on the way through, they reverse that. And the weight goes to the right. back foot. And, and, the, and the club bottoms out behind the ball. And, and so, so I'll tell them it's 70-30 on the chip shot. If you're in rough, you know, if you have a little bit of a, uh, of a lion rough, Steepen the angle a little bit more. Um, use a club with more law. Steepen the angle a little bit more because you're trying to get closer to the ball uh, and, and instead of getting grasped between a club face and ball. For pitch shots, as you back away from the green, um, I'll tell them you just I, – I say you favor the target side. And that might be, you know, 60-40, uh, that kind of, uh, of ratio. Um, because it's still it's important to have some angle uh, down yep. to it, um, but I'll also get them to eliminate the turn in the backswing so that the club mm-hmm. chases a little more up. Uh, but then go ahead and turn and clear on the true swing side. Again, well said. Um, and, and again, I, I just wanted to clarify that because you know we we often hear. Uh, and again, I know we don't have the the visual going here, but I think you've explained it simple enough that people understand what you're getting at. Um, but I thought it was important to really go back over that just a little bit so people understand, because a lot of times I see people really leaning that upper body. They're not, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. their weight obviously is going to be on the left side, but they're also, you know, leaning like the leaning tower of Pisa. Uh, and they yeah, end up really out there of position. And, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Out of position. Yeah. And then they're wondering why, you know, they're not making contact with the ball. They're slapping it into the turf and, and just not, you know, consistent with their chips. And, you know, really a chip shot is a lot easier uh, than what people make it out to be, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, last one I'm going to get you to talk about uh, a little bit is is putting. Um, obviously, we need to develop a good tempo. Uh, we need to understand the speed and obviously reading of the greens, and I know you don't have to get into all of it, but maybe you could just touch on uh, a little bit here. Um, and and a, a friend of mine who's also a, a fellow uh, golf professional has talked about really setting a benchmark, uh, and that's what he does with a lot of his students. And what I mean by that is he'll have them – you know, before round or in their practice session is, you know, once they take their, their, you know, putting position is he'll have them set a benchmark so that they know how far to take it back and through to hit a 10 foot putt, maybe mm-hmm. a 15 foot putt and so forth. Um, yep. I think it's a good technique so that when you get on the golf course, you, you've got some, some, you know, uh, a, a repertoire, if you will, of, of putting uh, distances so that you understand how the greens are working that day. But what, what is your approach to this? What do you do? and help uh, people develop some of these good tempos and, and obviously, uh, you know, hitting the speed of the green just correctly. What are some things that you do? Um, and maybe you can touch on, if we have time, to uh, talk about reading the green, how they need to look at that as well. 
Yeah. Well, I think I think what you just described is spot on. I I try to tell people if you make the backswing and the, and the through swing match, um, you have a increment of distance, right? And if you make yep. the backswing and the and the through stroke match, the acceleration point will be in the middle of that. Um, so then it's just a matter of adapting to the speeds of the grains. You know, you're, there isn't a formula that you take it three inches back and three inches through, it goes this far because right. green speeds are different. Um, yep. So the only thing you're adjusting based on that is the length of the backstroke to the through stroke. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it simplifies it. Uh, it, it it's, it's length of stroke versus strength of stroke. Um, and and I think the uh, uh, the process of practicing that and trusting that when you go onto the golf course because you, you've seen uh, it's both sides of it right short backstroke long yep. through stroke oh yeah um, th- yep. and that that can be uh, lead to lots of three putts and and the opposite if you have big backstroke and then deceleration into it yeah. Um, but it's really interesting, isn't it, watching the tour uh, players now? Because I'm a, there are every Monday. I know I'm going to have a question from a member about who just won and how do I get one of those putters or right. what is that? <laughs> explain that technique to me. And I'm like, well, you know, it's it's uh, it's somebody finding something that worked and really sticking to it. Um, yeah, uh, Lucas Glover. I mean, going from like can't make it from two feet to can't miss it from thirty. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, putting is one of those things. Isn't it? It's such a such a mystery. Um, and, and you started to talk about reading the grades. Uh, the the architects again play a big role in this because they love to mess with your eye. Um, no. with contours and, and things. The the one thing I tell every student is you start reading the green as you're approaching it from afar because the yeah. green is built to drain. It's not it's not no. built to hold water. It's 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 built to drain, to shed it. And as you walk up to the green, you'll find drains. And those drains, as you walk up onto the green, you can start to kind of see, well, this this part of the green feeds to that drain, and this part of the green feeds to that drain. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's there's not as much mystery to it as, as the commentators might think, as though, as though the desert, you know, when you go to, to Palm Springs, right, it, it breaks toward Indio. And it's like, well, what the heck does Indio have? Is it like a magnet? <laughs> Um, it's just it's the it's yeah. the drainage of the golf course, and the ball's going to follow right. that stuff. So that that is one of the things I'll tell them: don't don't get up on the green and look at what is obvious to your eye. Look what what's between you and the hole, and look for a drain one side or the other, because that's going to be the big influence. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, I appreciate. Uh, Dave, you taking some time and and hitting on some of the uh, the sweet spots, if you will, of of uh, some of the everyday um, struggles that many golfers have out there. And I appreciate you talking, obviously, about Seven Canyons as well. I'm very 
uh, excited uh, for all that's going on there, and I know the members appreciate that. And uh, again, a, a great testament to um, a, a top-notch uh, player for many years, Tom Weiskopf. Uh, sadly, uh, you know uh, he's, he will be missed, um, but we're grateful for all of the accomplishments that he's done and, and given to uh, the game, both during his play and afterwards through uh, his various yeah. designs and, and other uh, work as well. But um, I want to thank you very much for coming on. I'm glad uh, we're, we're not going to make it another five years. I'm going to have you back on uh, much sooner than that. Uh, it's just amazing where, where time goes. But, uh, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on. And, and uh, I'm going to have to make my way out to Seven Canyons one of these days, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. And uh, hopefully no I'll, I'll get out there and, and, uh, and get a chance to enjoy it, especially now. I was waiting for the, re- for the restoration to happen, but, no, I'm kidding. Um, but, um, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to checking it out, but, um, but thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing, um, you know, some of that, uh, with the audience and, and also, uh, some of your expertise and, and, and helping people uh, improve their game. But, uh, I, I appreciate uh, the conversation and I hope you had a good time as well. Well, uh, appreciate you. I really appreciate what you do. I think, uh, uh I think you bring a lot of, uh, uh variety uh, in, in terms of the guests and, and it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff that, you know, people may not, uh, necessarily hear, uh, through right. mainstream media and that kind of stuff. So, uh, appreciate what you do and always, uh, always eager to come back on. Appreciate it. And if I can get you to, to, uh, get off the lesson tee a little bit earlier in the day that you can come on an hour earlier, I'll get you to join in some of the coaches corner, uh, panel discussions tonight. I just had Allison on, but usually there's, uh, two or yeah. you know two to three uh, guests on, and I'd love to have your input uh, on. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll try to set that up. Uh, you know, either uh, this season or get you on next season. But uh, uh, Dave, as always, uh, it's a pleasure. I will definitely have you on one way or the other, uh, much sooner than later. And uh, I appreciate all your thoughts and input in the game, and much continued success. And for those, uh, as I promised, I said I was going to give you the website. If you go to sevencanyons.com, not only will you see some great video and some great imagery of uh, seven canyons that we've been talking about here tonight, uh, but you can also reach out and connect with uh, Dave Bisbee as well uh, through the contact information there and learn more about uh, the seven canyons out in Sedona. So it's a great, uh, a great course, a great property, and uh, a great gentleman out there helping uh, you guys uh, improve your game. But uh, Dave, thank you again for joining me. Ted, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. You have a great evening, great rest of the weekend, and I'll be in touch. All right. You take care. Right, bye-bye. All right. That was Dave Bisbee, uh, the GM and director of golf at Seven Canyons Golf Club, out as I mentioned, out in Sedona. And, again, very quickly, the uh, website is sevencanyons.com. Uh, again, you can find all uh, the information you want about the property, and you can also find out some of the great things, a lot of great uh, uh, residential opportunities, but also uh, you can get in touch with Dave and uh, uh, maybe uh, see if he can help you with your game, which I'm quite uh, confident he can. So go to sevencanyons.com. Uh, All right. Also, a spe- <clears throat> excuse me, a special thank you to Dr. Allison Kurt for joining me on a special Coaches Corner panel. Uh, thank you, Allison, for all that you do. And once again, thanks to Dave uh, for joining me tonight as my special guest. On that note, um, that's it for another uh Golf Talk Live. Remember, if you're just tuning in a little bit later and you want to go back and listen to the show its entirety, you go to uh, blogtalkradio.com 
uh, forward slash Golf Talk Live, or just type in the search key Golf Talk Live, and that will take you there. And you can just scroll down to the on-demand section and listen to not only tonight's show, it'll be there in a few minutes as it finishes compiling after I close off. And uh, you can listen to the recorded version. It's entirety, including uh, this earlier uh, hour segment that Allison was on. Uh, or you can just uh, continue to scroll down and get all of the previously aired shows as well. If you've missed some, i give you a good chance to catch up. But on that note, God bless everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.